0: Hi there, and welcome to Drones On Air. I'm your host, Ryan Kant, CEO and founder of Envirodrone. The podcast today is called Drone Discovers Penguins in Antarctica. Our guest speakers are Tom Hart and Thomas Sayre McCord. Dr. Tom Hart is a researcher at Oxford University in the Department of Zoology. His research centers around how to monitor penguins and other marine predators in difficult environments such as Antarctica. Mr. Sayre McCord is a research assistant at Applied Ocean Physics and Engineering, Wood Hole Oceanographic Institution. He was the drone pilot during the expedition capturing imagery of the penguins in their environments. In this episode, we will talk about Arctic environments that are data deficient and how we understand global change to permit effective management. We will learn about how they develop tools and techniques to scale up monitoring and data gathering of Adelie penguins using drones. Join us for an exhilarating flight on air through drone exploration, discovery and innovation. Welcome, Tom Hart and Thomas Sir McCord to Drones on Air. Tom, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
1: Uh, well, my name is Tom Hart. I work at Oxford University, and basically, I study penguins via a, a variety of methods.
0: Fantastic. And, and Thomas, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself as well and where you're from and, and what you do.
1: Uh, so,
2: I'm Thomas Sir McCord. I'm a graduate student at MIT and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, And I work on a variety of programs in robotics, uh, a lot of drone work, and
0: autonomy. It's great to have you guys on the show. You guys were just coming from Antarctica, so tell us a little about the project and and what that entailed.
1: Yeah, well, yes, um, you're right, we just got back from Antarctica, but this project was actually two years ago. It's basically taken us that long to count all the images and and write up and publish everything. Um, So... Basically, the premise was um, we have been going around Antarctica looking for places where counts weren't very good and that therefore make a big difference to how we manage Antarctica where we think the threats are. Then Heather went through satellite imagery and found huge return signals for guano, so basically penguin poo, from all of the islands. And based off the back of that, we had crude estimates of how many there might be. And that was enough for us to to really decide to go and and look and uh, census all of these islands.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So from the satellite imagery, we were able to see that there was some penguins in the area. So I guess tell us then what was the next steps? Um, How did you guys go about putting this project together? What were some of the hurdles? And when did finally things start, you know, kicking into gears
1: and started putting things together? Well, we did a lot of uh, literature review and trying to find appropriate maps, but um, really there are very few. So uh, Heather and Matt Schwaller, so Heather's from Stony Brook, Matt is from uh, NASA. Uh, they refined satellite imagery and gave us targets of where to look. Um, and we, we already had someone we'd work with very closely. So um, so Dion Ponce and Juliette Hannakin from the Hans Hansen they run this uh, old Norwegian lifeboat and uh, we've worked with them in the past. They're very good. Uh, these are the people who are often associated with filming things like um, Blue Planet and Planet Earth. Uh, so they're good. <laughs> they're very good. And then we we put this outline plan together with them. But really, there's, there's no substitute for just cautiously turning up and seeing where you can get to. I mean... These aren't very well charted, and they're not mapped, so you just go and see.
0: So so you're telling me that most of these islands you had to pretty well drive drive around in a vessel and and try to see if what you were finding from the satellite imagery was was true and that there were uh, penguins living in that particular area?
1: Absolutely, but uh, more than just drive around in a vessel, we, we landed on every island. And did a mixture of hand counts and drone uh, drone drone surveys that could then be used to count.
0: We were actually talking with Jared Hogson uh, from Adelaide University, and he actually does some some wildlife counts. So tell us, um, with the drone imagery coming into into uh, the works here on your project, now was it was it was the main imagery used to be able to count the number of, of penguins in, in on a particular island? Yeah. So uh,
2: what we did is we flew what. You know, is a lawnmower pattern, so just back and forth trying to get as much overlap between images as we can. And we try very hard to get the entire island in these images and stitch them all together. And then uh, once we had that, we had some, uh, you know, a few different people did a lot of counting of some penguins in you know, a subset of that imagery. And we used that to train a object detector, a neural network detector to count all the rest of our images.
0: Yeah, so tell us tell us the process that was was required for you to train the MLE for you to be able to detect the penguins.
2: So uh, the first part is you know you do need some training data. So correctly identified, you know, these are penguins and the rest of this image is not penguins. Uh, so that's that's the input to algorithm you you know you iterate through that and uh it keeps a subset of the images which are its test images and subset which are its training and it tries to improve performance Uh, so for us we actually counted an entire one of the islands as a validation of the technique and uh, i don't have the number off the top of my head but i think we're around five percent error in the total number of penguins for hand count versus auto-detected.
0: How many penguins would you say were required to build that accuracy? So how many individual photos of, of the, each individual penguins did you have to include into the MLE for that 5% accuracy?
2: So for that 5%, um, I don't have the exact images, but I think I use even less of the images of that one island, and then we use that same detector for all of the islands. Okay.
0: Uh, and how many photos did they vary in size? Are we talking a couple hundred acres or a couple hundred hectares? And how many images did you collect and have to stitch together in total?
2: Uh, thousands. Easily thousands. Uh,
0: yeah, that's that's definitely... Different large number for sure. So, which was some of these islands a lot smaller than than others, and and what was the largest island that you had to uh, that you had to, to model?
2: So, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Beagle was the largest island. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah so... absolutely, and that was probably still only two or three kilometers across.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: And probably so... less. I would say less than just under two, probably.
0: Um, Tom, I want to go back to you because one of the one of the, the key points I wanted to really um, really kind of focus on here was the impacts that climate change is having on these penguins. Can you just tell us a little bit about the issues that are facing the penguins and some of the climatic issues that are pushing these these penguins out from their original habitats and and creating this uh, super colony?
1: So, firstly, it's not that that's creating this colony. We think that actually elsewhere we're seeing degradation in the environment and loss of penguins. So, but here we think this has probably always been off uh, the knowable parts, that this has been relatively stable. So it's not a case of they're uh, migrating into here because as far back as we can tell, and we've got imagery from 1959, now we've found it. Um, as far as we can tell, these have been relatively stable. and um, but yeah, what's happening elsewhere is is really uh, a story of sea ice and krill. So sea ice is frozen sea, uh, so that comes in 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 autumn and it goes spring. Um, but that is the breeding ground for Antarctic krill, and these are small shrimp-like crustacean that everything eats. So where we're seeing losses of sea ice, uh, we're seeing um, reductions in chinstrap and the daily penguins. Uh, but we're also seeing some increases in gentoos. Now, gentoos eat uh, a mixed diet of fish and squid and things like that. So, um, so yes, sea, uh, sea ice loss and climate change is a huge part of the change we're seeing in Antarctica. Um, but it's not the only thing, because uh, there are fisheries in the area, particularly on the West Antarctic Peninsula, and as we lose sea ice, we actually allow in those fisheries even
0: now, with the uh, with the pressures and the ongoing issues with um, impacts from climate change, do you think that we may potentially see these these numbers of Adelaide penguins start to decline? Is this a concern for um, that we should be that we we should be a little bit concerned of?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the West Antarctic Peninsula we have seen large declines. Uh, if we start losing sea ice in the Weddell Sea, then yes, of course that will happen there as well. These big, hot, this hotspot of large colonies over several islands um, is probably because this area is currently so rich. It's not. Uh, it's not just that they're being pushed out of elsewhere. It's that like this is a genuine hotspot that is really good for a Adélie penguins.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. It sounds as though this, this species is fairly fairly stable. It's, it's just whether or not the, the feeding, uh, the, the, the krill and the, the food source is available um, long into the future. So that seems to be the largest and the most dependent uh, success for this penguin to continue to thrive.
1: Yes. So, um, so yeah, the thing for me was uh, this is an incredible new technique. I mean, it's not new, but it's newly applied to Antarctica. I think we showed how useful this is, because these areas that are hard to get to, you don't have a lot of time, or or you can't get to them very often. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely proven its worth. Um, One question we get asked quite a lot is, is whether flying drones over penguins is disturbing. And it certainly could be, but we went to great lengths to ensure that it wasn't. And you can actually see it from the video footage we've posted. You don't see movements in penguins. You don't see them looking at the drone. So basically we were taking off and landing away from the colony and then flying these lawnmower patterns that Thomas described uh, over the colony. And from the video we posted, you can see that, uh, yeah, they're just not reacting to it. They can't even see it. And certainly by the time it was in flight, we could barely see it.
0: That's good to know that penguins in this particular species, because this is an issue that it really is uh, species to species. Some species will show different types of induced stress where I know, you know, bears, they end up having an increased heart rate. Um, Some types of waterfowl, they'll start to uh, create, you know, they start to squawk a bit and they seem to be um, a little bit restless. Um, and, and we know that other types of, uh, uh, seals, they end up having some impacts due to induced stress that can cause them to potentially leave their young. So every species is different, but it's good to, it's, it's interesting to learn that penguins in particular, that they don't have to, uh, they don't seem to have, be disturbed by a drone flying overhead. Um, what, what is the, what was the operating altitude that you operated above the penguins that, uh, during, during your missions?
2: So we would average, uh, Depended on the environment, so if you know, there's some images where you can see that uh, there's like really nice black penguins against a light background, and we would fly a bit higher there. Okay. Uh, but for the more rocky regions, we'd go for around 35 meters.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, that's 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 quite low too. So that's quite interesting to know that that, that the, the disturbance wasn't uh, wasn't noticed. So it's definitely uh, it definitely proves that every species has. Uh, different variability in disturbance patterns when, when drone operations are flying. above head. So, Thomas, tell us a little bit about the experience flying in Antarctica and the challenge that you experienced um, with the environment.
2: Yeah, so I mean, the experience itself was pretty amazing. You're just in these completely gorgeous places with sea ice all around and doing some, you know, very exciting and impactful work, you know. Walking around with all of these biologists who are just really excited about the data coming back and the findings was, in the first place, a, a great experience. Uh, but as a pilot, you know some of the things that you experience in Antarctica. You kind of, from the start, we can anticipate like it's going to be cold, it's going to be windy. Uh, you know, one thing that comes up is you have uh, you're much closer to the pole, so you need to be much more careful with your compass calibration, uh, just so that the drone doesn't plain fly away. Um, but the one that actually caught me, I think, the most was a lot of these. You know, we're using a, a kind of an app to do this mapping, and the assumption there is that you have some sort of map to build off of. You've downloaded a satellite map uh, or whatever it is. You can see the boundaries of the area that you want to map markers. And in Antarctica, this just isn't true. You know, there just wasn't an accurate satellite map to fly off of. So that was one of the real problems that we had to solve. And fortunately, we we thought about it beforehand. You know, what happens if we just completely lose maps? Uh, And so the system we basically worked out was flying the drone with the camera and use the camera to kind of uh, mark out the area flying by hand, and then be able to go back and do a careful lawnmower pattern over that area. That's uh, so I think that was one of the big technical challenges we faced.
0: I never, I never realized that myself. So it's uh, pretty much the the sinusoidal Mercator projection is slightly, like, significantly skewed in those areas, and it sounds as though that some islands that do exist, it doesn't necessarily show their true position on the app. So. I guess if you flew it by hand, then what, uh, what were you doing, I guess, to make sure that you got the photos to stitch? Did you have to ensure that they were stitched immediately after flight to ensure that they, they matched properly?
2: Yeah, so what we actually, well, we had kind of two phases. In some areas, I just flew it by hand, and basically I would just overdo it like crazy. Just, you know, a lot of overlap, no question about it. Uh, but what we'd also do is fly by hand to sort of mark out the boundaries of an area. So, uh, you know, use visual feature to say, okay, this polygon, I'm going to fly to each of the corners, use the GPS location to put down a marker on the basically non-existent map, and then go back through and let it do its own lawnmower pattern within those markers.
0: Oh, wow. That's, that's definitely a, a nifty trick that you, uh, that you discovered, with the environment in that and, and being very windy some days and very cold, did you experience any issues during flight and any um, any any issue with the battery and the and the battery not lasting as long as it maybe would otherwise in a warmer temperate area?
2: Yeah. So the real trick there is once you're flying, the batteries are you know they self warm. So the trick was getting it into the drone already warm enough. So. What we would do is often, you know, the next battery up would be close to our body. So we would keep it warm inside our jackets, stick it in the drone. Once you're flying, uh, we didn't have a big problem with the lifetime of the batteries once it was already going.
0: That's brilliant. And Now, was it windy at all in, in Anarka on that some of the days? Was there any days that you couldn't fly because of the, at, the conditions?
2: Absolutely. So there was, you know, it was plenty of days where... This isn't a flying day, uh, so it was me and uh, almost all the time it was me and uh, a guy Phil who's a, a biologist but also a tech-focused biologist. Um, so it was the two of us out there, and we had a pretty strict: if one of us isn't feeling great about it, we're just not flying that day.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because I think most most people don't realize that yes, there's three hundred sixty-five days in the year, but not all days being perfect. Uh, conditions for flight whether it be too windy or if it's raining and i can only imagine the 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 difficulties in antarctica because those are some extreme weather conditions and so it's interesting to learn that yeah you had a lot of days that you couldn't fly so yeah that's 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 interesting so how many days if you if you could if you if you remember how many days was it that you couldn't fly in comparison to how many days the expedition took place for
2: um so we i mean we completely anticipated this in the plan that there was going to be plenty of days that we weren't going to fly. Uh, So, you know, the first day that we, actually the first day we landed, we were able to fly, and that one day alone, we were really delighted. It was, this is awesome. You know, if everything goes wrong from here, we still have some great data. Uh, But I would say it was around half and half that we would step out hoping to fly and be able to or not be able to.
0: Yeah, and, and, and the time that you went to was, was the warm season, uh, which offers more days for you to fly as well. So it's, it's good that, obviously, the project was coordinated in that way. So that's, that's really interesting.
2: Um, yeah, and so the timing of the project actually had to do with the nesting time of penguins. Uh, so that was the big thing we were aiming for, was to get there while the penguins were nesting.
0: I see, okay. That makes a lot of sense. So, did you have any mishaps or scares with the drone?
2: Actually, to that question, I'd say we really didn't have a lot of scares with the drone because uh, we were very, very careful about it this yeah. a, you know having the drone crash and leaving plastic parts leaving battery debris in that area is really something that we considered unacceptable so yeah. like i said if we even if we just had a bad gut feeling we wouldn't do it and we had some you know, we would measure the wind, we would, you know, go through the checklist. Is the drone responding properly? Is it really ready to take off? So uh, unfortunately, or fortunate, well, really fortunately, we don't have any fun stories of debacles.
0: Yeah, that's good. That sounds like it was planned well in the operating emergency plans and the mishaps and everything like that. And your checklist, were are all, were all in line. So that's, that's great. On your adventure and your expedition to head down, we didn't really kind of open to that part of the adventure and when you left say Boston and and where you headed to next and then the board then you the the, the vessel then you boarded from there so maybe we could talk about like that that like that the journey like the travel
2: so leaving Boston um flew we were flying through a couple stops to uh the Falkland Islands and so you know one funny part for me was you don't want to put batteries in the hold of an airplane and for me I also really couldn't afford them to lose my drones. so I was I think carrying one drone on my back as well as uh, I forget how many extra batteries I had in total I think it was around eight and all of that's in a backpack and so just security checkpoint after security checkpoint they're opening it up like what is going on with this guy? Like, they just didn't know what to do with me, but I wasn't breaking any rules, so they got of open it up, look at it, talk to each other, and then vaguely wigged me through, thinking, I don't know what's going on here. That's uh,
0: too funny. So that
2: was a little bit of stress at every one of those, like, there, there's going to be okay, right? Yeah. Um, and so we got to the Falklands and uh, boarded the boat, which was quite small. Uh, I'm I'm quite tall, and I could stand in only one of the rooms in the boat. (laughs) So that was an adventure for the month we lived on board of it. And we did the passage, which was pretty miserable. It's a lot of pitching around in the ocean, a lot of lying in bed, watching movies or reading books, and (laughs) trying to eat and not be too seasick.
0: So how long did it take um, you from from the port to get to where you had to be? Was it a, a couple of days?
2: Yeah, it was around three days. Okay, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah that's, quite and, a, that's quite a journey. It's a lot of lot of movies and shows, I bet.
2: Yeah, yeah, and all of these, you know, I, this was only my second trip down to Antarctica, but everyone else on the trip had been there many, many times, so they've all just got their hard drives full of movies and TV shows
0: <laughs> uh, okay. just ready to go. That's funny, yeah. So thanks, Tom, and thanks, Thomas, for being on the show. We really appreciate you uh, being in air with us. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, that wraps up our sixth episode of Drones on Air. I hope this podcast provides you with insight on how drones are being used to discover and assess habitat requirements for Adelie penguins. If you have any questions about this podcast, please email me at ryan at envdrone.com. Join us on April 18th as we interview Alan Reese, who is using drones to conserve and protect sea turtles. We will learn about how drones are being deployed to radically change conservation efforts to protect this fragile species. Make sure to follow us on social media at Drone and visit our website at www.embodrone.com.